Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Hello, this is James Fleegi, producer of the podcast. I wanted to apologize for the audio quality during this interview. The technology turned against us at Tech Refactored HQ and damaged audio files from the interview, so we'll be listening to our backup audio today, but please stick around as it's a great discussion. Thanks for listening. Back to Gus. I'm joined today by Dr. Christine Wittick, an assistant professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Nebraska College of Engineering. Her work focuses on structural engineering, natural hazards, and remote sensing. And she is a recent recipient of a grant to study the use of social media by state departments of transportation during emergencies. And that's where our conversation today is going to start. But we are recording on February 14, 2023, still just a week after the devastating February 6th earthquake in Turkey and Syria that has killed, as of this morning I saw, at least 37,000 people. Yesterday, I spoke with Dr. Cara Burberry, a structural geologist, about the mechanisms behind earthquakes. We already had Christine scheduled to talk about her research on social media, but she is also an expert in structural engineering, studying how we construct earthquake-resilient buildings, among other topics. It would be hard for us not to take some of our time today with Christine to consider topics relating to this incredible human tragedy. As with our discussion of Dr. Burberry, our focus in today's discussion isn't the day-to-day developments or the news about this earthquake, which isn't meant to diminish the human toll of the disaster. When we see headlines like 7.8 magnitude earthquake shakes Turkey and Syria, we know something bad has happened, but most of us don't really know what it is that has happened or why it was so bad, and many of us may have questions about what we can do to prevent such disasters from having such a terrible impact in the future. That's where structural engineering comes in, and with Christine, we have an expert here to help us understand some of these questions. Christine, welcome to Tech Refactored. Great, thanks so much for having me. I want to start with your recent work using social media to study how departments of transportation respond to emergencies. Can you just tell us a little bit about what this grant is and what you mean when we say using social media to study how departments of transportation respond to emergencies? Sure. So this project uh, is effectively to survey, interview, and get the lay of the land for how state DOTs are utilizing or not utilizing social media during emergencies. So state DOTs are responsible for their entire state, and they are really very critical during emergencies because of things like evacuation. People need to be able to get from point A to point B. Emergency services need to be able to get from point A to point B. And so given that their governance is all of the state highway systems, they really need to have a very timely response. Um, we're looking at how they utilize social media or don't utilize social media to help ultimately have them have the most timely type of response that they could and to have all the information at hand. Uh, a lot of state DOTs, just based, you know, states are independent, handle things very differently. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to understand how all of them are utilizing it, are not utilizing it, so that ultimately we can you know, make recommendations about how state DOTs could potentially better respond to, during emergencies such as 
where to be redirecting individuals or you know to or away from individual locations so the word use is a bit ambiguous oh. um, so when, when we think of uh, when i first saw the work i saw states using social media to respond to emergencies my thought was how do they use social media to communicate to send information out you're actually coming at it from the opposite direction how do states use social media as a way of information gathering and collection Yes, yes, sorry that I, I glossed over that part. So we're, we're gathering information still about how they use it for dissemination, kind of that one-way mode of, of, of transmitting information. And that seems pretty well, well done, or, or kind of, you know, uniformly done. They can use that like many kind of government agencies. But we are more specifically looking at how they're leveraging the data available on social media for decision-making. Since it's, it's very key, they've got really broad areas that they need to monitor and monitoring remote areas of your state can be very very difficult to do they've got some cameras on certain highways but those are limited they're few and far between uh, but people are are many and so if they can leverage that data or incorporate it into pipelines for decision making then they could have a much better picture about what's going on and hopefully an improved response so the grant you received was announced a, a bit under a year ago, um, so I, I know this is still in-progress work. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what some of your research questions are, what some of the things that you're investigating? Yes, uh, so specifically we're looking at situations where they are utilizing social media data and how they're doing it. So we want to know which types of hazards or emergencies are you incorporating social media? Who on your teams are doing so? What types of, most important, what types of barriers are in your way to better leveraging social media? So you're really studying what the State Departments of Transportation are doing. They're, they're the research subject, not the use of social media. You're, you're not developing tools or methodologies necessarily for them to use. No, that would be something that could hopefully come out of this. So before we can take those steps, we want to first understand what are the use cases, what are their needs, what's currently holding them back, so that eventually maybe tools could be developed that would be of actual use and could, could really be implemented. Which uh, departments of transportation are you working with and what has your experience been reaching out and engaging with them? Yes, so all state DOTs, so 50 plus the uh, District of Columbia, so 51 are, they're our population. Uh, we're attacking this first through a general survey, um, so quantitative survey. Uh, right now we're getting pretty positive feedback, um, and by that I mean response rate. So right now we're sitting at about 80% response rate, so we're working pretty broadly across the United States. Uh, from there, we have begun reaching out to individual states for more interactive interview type situations so that we can really fully understand the use cases. And those interviews and kind of individual states that we'll reach out to are selected, one, for their willingness <laughs> to have a team member who's willing to, to donate their time to this research study. And then second, to really make sure we're trying to cover the range of what types of emergencies they're utilizing social media for and the ways in which they're utilizing it. Is this a very automated pipeline or are they really doing this kind of boots on the ground, if you will, on, on individual devices, kind of gathering things as they as an individual can. Um, and so that's kind of, we're trying to fill that range at this point. And I, I apologize to your uh, collaborators. You're using the word we. Uh, is this a solo <laughs> project or who are you working with on this? 
Sure. So I, I say we because this is sponsored by the National Cooperative Highway Research Program. And so it is a collaboration in that regard with the NCHRP and the panelists who advise the project. And of course, there's a graduate student researcher on the project as well. Mm -hmm. Always need to respect and show gratitude to, to uh, the graduates who make yes. so much of uh, the work that we do possible. So positive response rate. Any interesting substantive responses at this point? So I'm not, I can't comment too far on the data that's received until it's been finalized and kind of gone through QA. Uh, but kind of a, a bigger picture observation that we're making right now is that things are very piecemeal. There is not necessarily a, a consistent approach that we're seeing. And so it's very much, there's an emergency, who has a device, who can observe something rather than really well implemented pipelines. Um, and so we're starting to see that as kind of an area that may emerge from the studies that the need for frameworks, pipelines to, to kind of process this data so that decisions can be made readily. And that's something we've seen in other, you know, from the literature on the use of social media and emergencies is that the data is really varied. It's hard to put a pipeline in place to facilitate decision making when the data that you're going to get from these platforms is going to change mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, and so we're, we're starting to see kind of similar barriers and because of that less implementation. Mm. And you aren't focused on any particular form of social media. You're, I expect you're interested in anything that the states are using. So it's not just necessarily Twitter um, or one platform or another platform. If states are looking at friends of the leader of the Department of Transportation on Facebook, you want to know that. Exactly. Yeah. So we're, we're keeping it very broad. One of the questions we ask them is which platforms you're utilizing to disseminate, which platforms you're utilizing to gather. Um, and so we are trying to keep it fairly broad in that regard. I'd be really interested in your response to the observation I'm about to make, which is for any law students out there, there is a fascinating research question here relating to the contractual and statutory framework for accessing, gathering, and using this information, whether uh, social media platforms have contractual, uh, in their terms of uh, service, prohibitions on this sort of data scraping or how under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act it might be treated, whether if there might be legal restrictions, we should have exceptions in this CFAA or Stored Communications Act for this sort of use and uh, ideas like that. So putting my law professor hat on, just uh, the, the legal framework, there have been really important cases going up to the Supreme Court in recent years about accessing this type of data and scraping data from uh, social media platforms. So I'm, I'm curious whether that's something within the scope of your research or something that you're asking about. Yes, it is something that we're asking about, but not something that, you know, obviously this is being conducted by, <laughs> by engineers regarding transportation. <laughs> um, but it is so when we're asking specifically about barriers. Um, so one of the questions on our survey surrounds, you know, what are some of the barriers that are preventing you from doing this? And one of these is policy or other legal restrictions. And so we know because of other, you know, from the literature on social media use in emergencies, that this is something that has impacted other types of agencies in other situations. And so we expect that it is something that could be holding back depending upon the individual states as well. So we're gathering that information so that decisions for future 
research could be made as a result, um, but it's not something we're really diving in much beyond, is this a current barrier in your current situation or something that you're considering? We're also attempting to gather policies, any policy that an individual state DOT or a state government has regarding its use, um, but we have not quite been able to kind of get through those. We're, we're in a gathering state for that type of information that we will include in, in the final report. So that information will be gathered and available mm -hmm. for legal experts like yourself <laughs> to um, begin jumping into that research area. So thinking about jumping into research areas, if I'm right, you did not get your PhD in social media. You are a expert in structural engineering. How did you get into studying the use of social media? Yeah, great question. It is, it's, it's a jump from a jump, effectively. Uh, so I got my PhD in structural engineering with a focus on earthquake engineering for something called freestanding or unattached structures. So usually when somebody gets any degree in structural engineering, most of what you focus on are structural components for usually mostly buildings and then sometimes bridges, sometimes that's even reserved just for graduate education situations. Mm -hmm. What I studied in graduate school was things not like that. Uh, so in fact, I did a whole suite of experimentation on statue pedestal systems. Um, so I looked at statue pedestals, other unattached, so this is like mechanical and electrical equipment that are really necessary to support a building um, and which need to be able to withstand hazards, mm -hmm. but they're not your building. Uh, this also goes into, I do a lot of work with steel grain bins, so not your buildings, not your bridges. And now one of the ways in which we learn a ton about how these structures perform is through something we call reconnaissance. So this is an event happens, a major hazard happens, boots on the ground, we go out, make observations, measurements, and understand what worked, what didn't, where do we need to perform better. Mm -hmm. And now, given my focus on these more atypical structures, um, especially, for instance, grain bins, pivot irrigators, it's hard to know when an event happens, what's been damaged. Mm -hmm. We usually, media and news oftentimes focus on big impact items. And so, the reason I get into social media is individual people document damage that they see. It's kind of hu human nature. We take pictures of people <laughs> and they're usually posted. And so I decided that, I was like, I need to understand how these structures are performing, where this damage is, is occurring, and make decisions about whether to go out or not, or someone from my team to go out and survey this damage. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to utilize social media in the event, kind of gather as much as we can, um, primarily via photographs, uh, but also some textual descriptions. Uh, so gathering all that data, and then we've done some work on developing machine learning and deep learning algorithms to try to automatically classify some of these structures, weed out the irrelevant photos, gather the ones of the structures that we're interested in, so that then we can say, oh, there's a lot of this type of damage occurring in this area following this event, so that then we can start to learn about how these structures perform, mm -hmm. and then better inform where we want to go with that, how we can make them better, which is the, the real structural engineering question. So social media has primarily been a tool utilized you know, within my research group to gather that information. And as a civil engineer, I work a lot with uh, state departments of transportation. They fund a lot, of the, 
they've got a lot of bridges. Uh, so they, <laughs> yeah. they're, yes, they're, they're a typical partner of, of ours, and a lot of civil engineers work at DOTs. And so this was really a natural fit project. How are they utilizing social media in, in emergencies, and potentially how can we better utilize this if they're, you know, what else can we gather from, from this type of a situation? I, I love the interdisciplinary nature of this. You talk about using machine learning to identify things <laughs> relevant to you. If you look at Twitter, I I do see a lot of picture of grain bins as an example, <laughs> but very rarely will someone in a tweet say, here's a picture of my grain bin, look at this interesting damage. They say, oh my God, look what the tornado yeah. did or something like that. Yes. And that's completely unhelpful. So being able to use a machine learning yeah. classifier, that's one field. Social media, mm -hmm. that's a whole other field of study coming into your field of study and going back to my earlier question mm -hmm. about the, the legal restrictions on and regulation of use and access to this data. There's another field and you need to be thinking about all of that. I, it's uh, uh, just a, a wonderful demonstration of the importance of interdisciplinarity, but also the challenges of interdisciplinarity. Oh, absolutely. The most important research questions are the best work that we can do is going to come interdisciplinarily. Um, and so I think that's obviously very important. You know, going back to my PhD, I had already, you know, I had two advisors, one of which was on the computer science side, structural engineering side, and now coming here to Nebraska, you know, we get to work with agricultural engineers um, so that we can, you know, start looking at these grain bin problems. Um, Legalized, but that's whole area I have not actually really gotten to, to touch much on yet, aside mm -hmm. from gathering the, the results of this survey question. Um, but exactly, if we want to make the biggest impact, you know, to, to people and to society, which is why we're doing what we're doing, that, then we need to be kind of branching out from our, our silos, if you will. <laughs> yes. uh, I am unfortunately, from your perspective, perhaps all about knocking down silos. <laughs> that, that is my professional goal. <laughs> So where do you think this work uh, fits into your broader research agenda? Where is it going to take you as, uh, I know you're still in the information gathering, this is still ongoing work, but what branches do you see coming off of this work? Yes, based upon this, this project will largely end with, here's the lay of the land in the current situation. Based upon what we know about how social media has been used in other situations, we can kind of envision what some of the results likely are going to be, which is probably going to involve pipelines, frameworks for actually implementing and leveraging this data. One thing that could really help a state DOT make better decisions or make enhanced decisions, more informed decisions. The way that I see this coming in is if even one aspect of emergency response is gathering this information, I think we could see almost a full circle picture here where it's, yeah, we want to understand what's currently going on so that we can inform response efforts, so that we can short-term recovery, get people the resources that they need. But at the same time, a lot of this information coming in and the resources going out and more information coming in can help better inform what do we as structural engineers and community planners need to do better to make our communities a lot more resilient to these hazards. So I see it kind of branching substantially out, certainly very interdisciplinarily, mm -hmm. um, regarding how can we make our communities much more resilient. Right? So me kind of fitting in there as the structural engineer, not, not branching out too much, is let's get these images in, let's enhance our algorithms so that we can understand the types of damage, the types of, of structures, and what those hazards were so that we can then turn around and say, we need to pay more attention to this particular type of connection. This particular type of structure is, is where we need to focus our, our attention. So that's, that's what I hope to 
much bigger picture gain from, from this type of a study. Yeah, and what one of the, I think, really cool things about this approach, a lot of localities over the last 15, 20 years have been embracing the smartphone era and they have city apps so you can report 311 or where the pothole is or stuff like that. <laughs> but there, there's a real equity issue with those because generally you look at the wealthy neighborhood, everyone's going to be there on their smartphone documenting all the potholes and that's where the resources are therefore going to go and they tend to be better informed, have more knowledge about this, more access to the resources to do this. But social media is at least a little different. It's a lot more users, a lot more people use social media and they aren't thinking, oh, I'm engaged in this civic reporting thing. It's just, oh, here's this cool thing. Uh, so I, I wonder if you've given any thought to the equitable characteristics that this sort of approach to research might have. Yes, and so one of the big reasons that I, I have liked social media it, as a data source is exactly what you mentioned in that it's, we're not putting a request out. We're trying to just gather data from the land, from the people, and so it does help but not solve the major equity issues because there are a lot of platforms and a lot of DOTs likely utilize a lot of that type of, hey, tell us about this. Um, that's one of the questions we're actually asking them is, do you currently rely upon this as a, a major data source? How heavily do you rely on it? And so I think that utilizing social media helps in, enhance the equity in that regard. But I think there's a lot of situations that it really does not necessarily fully solve it. So a lot of our fairly far-flung rural communities don't have a lot of data coverage. And there's a lot of folks that don't actually have smartphones. And so one of the questions branching to another research direction of mine is, again, how can we make those communities and rural communities in general more resilient and responsive. So one tool that we can use is social media, but it can't be the only, right? We need to acknowledge the fact that there are homes and people who don't have access to those tools and how can we better engage them or what types of pipelines can we put in to know what's going on at those locations for pretty geographically distributed hazards, like a flood, for instance. So that's really a research question in and of itself that we're hoping to be able to tackle over the next few years. So pivoting, I actually saw this morning a article um, in the news about how recent changes to policies on Twitter resulting from the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk have been hampering response efforts to the earthquake in Turkey. So we have social media, we have response, and we have a natural disaster there. I'm not going to ask you about Twitter or Elon Musk. Um, people <laughs> talk plenty about uh, those topics as it is, but I'd like to talk a little bit about structural engineering mm -hmm. and how we can build structures that are more resilient to earthquakes. And we, we've been seeing in the news people getting arrested in Turkey for having not followed con a construction code and just today, a lot of discussion about recordings of the president of Turkey a couple of years ago, talking about how he was making it easier for people building these buildings to not need to follow construction code instead of losing their construction licenses or things like that. They just needed to pay fines if they were found to have not followed code. I want to start with a really big picture question. What is the goal of structural engineering when it comes to dealing with natural hazards like earthquakes? Yes, so the bigger picture for us to realize as, as structural engineers or what we try to do is 
what's important for everyone to kind of realize is that an earthquake can happen and it, we recognize it's, it's probabilistic. We don't know that, oh, magnitude 6.5 is going to occur in our region in the next hundred years and we're going to design for that and not one ounce above that. We can't say that. We have no idea. We could have a, a six followed by a seven followed by an eight, three days apart. It, it, it could happen. <laughs> Probabilistically, not, not very probable, um, but these things can happen. And so when we try to design our structures, what we want to do is say, okay, here's a, a design level earthquake. Here's one we expect to happen over the structure's lifetime. And then there's one you can think about as a maximum that we might consider, right? This is one that could have a pretty low chance of it happening over its lifetime. And so we can't design for both of those and say, nothing's going to happen. Everybody's going to sit in their chairs. They'll sway a little bit and say, wow, that was a, that was a good earthquake. That's never going to happen. All right. And so we can design our structures for multiple levels. The highest one being life safety. And life safety is a situation where we want to design our buildings, acknowledging there's going to be damage. Mm -hmm. The key there is preventing collapse. We want people to be able to evacuate safely before anyone is injured. Mm -hmm. We can also then you will need to break up our individual structure types, right? So each structure is going to have those individual earthquakes and, and the way in which we're going to want to design for, you know, no damage versus life safety. Then you have differences between like, say, your residential buildings versus your hospitals. So when earthquake happens, the hospital, it's more important that that is fully functional, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want damage because people from all of the other structures are going to need to get there. Right. And so usually our hospitals or the way ASCE has teams, it's an importance factor. Mm -hmm. um, ASCE. So American Society of Civil Engineers, I apologize. Yep, <laughs> yep. acronyms. Uh, so there's similar things throughout the world. It's usually referred to as an importance factor that we can give to individual structures. So, you know, how important is it for it to be fully functional after a hazard or if it just needs to be able to safely allow people the chance to leave? And so those are really the, the big things about structural engineering, right? We, we know there's going to be damage. It's designing for certain levels of damage mm -hmm. and also recognizing the fact that you can still have an event that you knew was such a small percentage, we cannot design for everything. And it's impossible to convince, you know, a building owner to say, well, there's a 0.005% chance that this earthquake of this magnitude would occur. Pretty much no building owner is going to say, let us do that. I want to put so much money towards the structure. And so it's treated in this much more of a probabilistic approach that helps with our structures, but I do think this, there's also a big gap in education for the general public also about how their structures perform. They are not usually involved in some of those decisions and, and discussions and recognizing what's going to happen or what they should actually expect during an earthquake. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that in just a second, um, j just make sure con conceptually to give mm -hmm. a, uh, a, a metaphor. Most drivers are familiar with the idea of a crumple zone in your car. Mm -hmm. So if you get into an accident, nowadays we design cars so that the energy from that accident is going to be absorbed by the car's frame by mangling it and destroying it and shielding the driver from that energy so that you, the driver, are going to be able to walk away from that terrible accident safely. But your car is going to be totaled. It's going to be absolutely destroyed. and 
that's a decision that we make. We are protecting your life at the cost of your car, and most of us are probably okay with that, um, but it, it also means that a smaller accident that might not be life-threatening is more likely to destroy your car as well. And so you get into maybe a bit more than a fender bender, but not much more, and your frame is damaged, and okay, it's a $6,000 repair for your car instead of replacing a $300 fender. And a lot of us drivers might be upset about that trade-off. From the structural engineering perspective, it's a similar sort of trade-off. We can design buildings so that when something, an event like uh, an earthquake happens, the building is going to collapse in a more controlled way, or certain members are going to fall or fail in a way that's going to preserve the structure of the building so that you can escape, you'll survive, but it won't be habitable or usable, perhaps. Yes, that's actually an awesome analogy that I don't think I've ever discussed in class, which is <laughs> the crumple zone of a car. That is something that people accept. Um, but it, yeah, there is, it's a similar situation, but I don't think the general public necessarily recognizes the fact that we expect damage. Now, I will say that collapse is what we're genuinely trying to prevent. And so usually this is going to take the form of, so if you think about like um, multi-story, frame structure, remove all the partition walls and non-structural components. We're talking about like particular failures, like at, you can think like at beam column um, connections in our structure, right? So the key thing that we want is that it does not pancake, that it does not collapse, but we can have substantial damage, for instance, at those columns. And we can actually build it into the design is, right? So we're designing the structure, we can give it places where we want, we can, we can channel where the failure occurs mm -hmm. or where we want the failure to occur. Um, so if you think about a steel, like an I-shaped steel beam that you typically mm -hmm. see at a construction site, they can do what's called a dog bone, where you kind of remove some material towards the end in kind of a U-shaped mm -hmm. fashion, it looks like a little dog bone. Now, when this beam needs to absorb energy, that's the place where it's going to, to yield first. And that's, mm -hmm. we've selected that because we know that it's, much more controlled way to fail so that we don't result in, in collapse, which could happen if we didn't give it a place to, to fail first. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the things that structural engineers can build into designs to allow these things to happen, but there is always a limit. <laughs> mm -hmm. So who does make these decisions? Who decides what code should be? I don't think that I've heard in any recent presidential election or local election, my platform is that I think we should increase spending by 5% on construction in a way that's going to reduce the likelihood of catastrophic building failure by 0.7%. That, that's never been a campaign issue that I've nope. heard. So who, <laughs> no. who, who decides these things? Um, so pretty much in the United States, so municipalities choose to adopt building codes. Throughout the United States, it's pretty well adopted, I'd say, so that there is very little deviation. Municipalities can always add additional constraints, but it's pretty much, you know, the United States will follow, for instance, American Society of Civil Engineers, you know, minimum design guidelines, minimum loads and criteria. So yeah, it's pretty much well adopted here. Other countries, it could be a different situation, but it's in the U.S., it's municipalities adopt codes, and the codes are usually formed by experts kind of at a, at a national level and then recommended. And, and I assume that we have different codes here in Nebraska than say in California, an earthquake, more earthquake prone area? 
Yes, so within our, so it's called ASCE 7, I believe the latest version was 21, which came out 21, that's it's basically where you go to figure out what design loads, what do you need to design your building for, and they include maps of the United States for various situations, and so we can technically be utilizing the same code, but there would be different loads that have to be followed based upon where you are. So here in Nebraska, we consider very, very, very smaller, much, much, much smaller earthquake load than say San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or even, you know, the St. Louis area. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it varies geographically and the same thing with wind speeds off the coast of Florida, very high wind speeds um, compared to, you know, uh, upstate New York. Mm -hmm. um, and so that varies across the entire country. And so we have maps, considers everywhere in the contiguous as well as well, Alaska and Hawaii are also included um, to, to kind of provide those loads. So same, same code necessarily, but uh, we can end up with different loads. Mm -hmm. So when we spoke with Dr. Burberry about earthquakes, one of the things we discussed is what you actually experience on the ground during an earthquake and the, the different sorts of waves and oscillations. Mm -hmm. I wonder from the structural engineering side, what actually causes buildings to fail during an earthquake? So that very much depends on the type of structures. So structures can vary substantially and the earthquake motion can vary substantially. And so like a, a, a small example you could have is, let's say you had, um, think about like the 1985 like Mexico City earthquake, certain height buildings primarily collapsed. And so if you think about, you know, various types of, of springs, right, natural frequencies, go back to basically physics. All structures have different natural frequencies, for instance. So depending upon the ground's shaking, the characteristics of that earthquake, right, that earthquake could be dominated by specific types of frequencies. And so it's going to more significantly excite those types of structures where the natural frequencies of the earthquake matches or is close to the natural frequencies of the buildings. So those buildings are going to vibrate a lot more. So you can imagine mm. a lot more sway, a lot more displacement between two stories. A lot more displacement between two stories you can start to think that that's going to push a material beyond its limits for instance we're going to start to see yielding of steel we'll see cracking of concrete for instance and then the entire structure again could be kind of sufficient damage can can lead to collapse in that regard so it very much depends on what structures we're, we're looking at with respect to the earthquake that is occurring Mm. So for listeners, the, the natural frequency, <laughs> you, you, can, you can imagine a, a swing, someone on a swing, there's a natural frequency, and if you push for the person on the swing at that, each time they swing back and forth, it's going to get a bigger and a bigger swing. But if instead you push against that frequency, as the person is coming at you, you start pushing them, you're actually going to slow down their swing. So if the earthquake is at a frequency at, that's near or the same as a building's natural frequency, every shake of the earth is actually going to increase the sway of the building in which can cause it to exceed its tolerances. In a very simplistic way, yes. That's what I go for. No, I appreciate you trying to take how I usually talk about things with junior, senior, graduate level students <laughs> um, and, and trying to make it more accessible. So, so thank you, yes. <laughs> um, it can, it can boil down to effectively, yes, d does the earthquake's response push the building or does it 
does it not? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Crumple zones and playground swings. This is the level I tried to operate at. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I, I wonder, one of the, frankly, most upsetting things over the last couple of weeks has been photographs from Turkey and Syria. But uh, one of the things that we have seen is a lot of photographs of rubble, of destroyed buildings, of collapsed buildings. And we know from reporting that one of the big reasons that this disaster has had such a human toll has been a engineering failure, not necessarily of the codes and the standards, but of the engineers and the actual construction. What can we learn from just these photos and images of building failures, or just this in a slightly different way? When you look at these photos, what do you see? Yes. So. I know I mentioned earlier, I kind of, I like to utilize, you know, photographic evidence to start to get a better picture about damage and the causes of damage following a natural hazard. That unfortunately, there's a line that is crossed effectively where once we see rubble and collapse, there's little that, that an image can tell us, unfortunately. Small amounts of damage progress. I mean, we, we can see and learn a lot, but once it's pushed to that point, Debris is debris, unfortunately. And so when I see photos like that, my engineer hat does not come on. I see just a failure probably at several levels that this had to happen. The earth and its forces are one thing, but it's our job, you know, not just as engineers, as levels of, of government, as the people literally putting things together. Everybody needs to, to work together to make sure because people are, are putting their lives in your hands. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's very important that everybody respects and understands the severity of their role in that pipeline. And so when I see so much rubble and collapse and tens of thousands of, of deaths, there's a much bigger problem going on in that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hopefully discussions like these and Unfortunately, events like this, they're, they're reminders of that, but also they're, they're opportunities to learn and to think about the, the role of science and understanding what happens and how do we address it, how do we respond to these things. I, I think I ended our discussion with Kara on a similar note that one of the lessons is stuff like this happens, where we can't design buildings to not have earthquakes. Yeah. Earthquakes are going to happen. Natural disasters are going to happen, and we need to incorporate that into everything about our built world and how we think about natural disasters in society. Yes, absolutely. We cannot control the earthquake. We can only control how we respond to that earthquake and how we prepare for that earthquake. Um, and so some of the things that, you know, we may have buildings, you know, even in the United States, throughout the entire world that were either built before current codes, um, right? Those can, can exist, absolutely. Or there's ones maybe didn't fully follow it, right? But what this can do is remind us of the fact that we can't avoid this earthquake. This is going to happen. And so we can revisit those structures. We don't need to build completely new, we can rehabilitate. We can, you know, incorporate mitigative measures into that building to help strengthen it in the face of potential future earthquakes. So there are opportunities and I think it, you know, the, the world would be remiss not to use this as a major reminder to deal with that situation, right? 
figure out are, are your structures up to current codes and expectations to the people in those buildings understand right mm -hmm. what it is that their their building has been designed for right so that they can make those decisions to potentially say hey we want to invest some, some more of our funds into making this stronger or, or up to to current code standards well dr uh, christine Wittick. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Social media and natural disaster. Not necessarily peanut butter and jelly, but I'm really glad that you took the time to help us learn more about both of these topics. Absolutely, thanks so much for having me. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegey is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.